The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Exodus, chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what he has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be the feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is the stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you." But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn high against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of the defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he became near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned high, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground to the powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of the Lord burn high. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this Moses... The man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. 
So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the Desirian of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around them. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on each side, on your side, each of you, excuse me, and go to and from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you killed his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of the book you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they have made the calf the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We come to a semi-well-known passage in the book of Exodus. I think if we were to think through the story, if you have a background in the Bible, one of the key moments for the Israelites is this passage here where they create this golden calf, right? The golden calf incident. And it's hard to tell the story without this ugly moment sort of rearing its head through. Not only does the story give Israel a bad look, when we look at this, we see, well, how could, how could they possibly do what they just did, given what happened in the previous 10, 15 chapters? How could they do such a thing? And, and so it kind of puts the Israelites in this bad light, but I think as we read this story as well, it does this also, it, it's kind of scary how it does it, but it, it sort of shifts the light on us, that we're able to see ourselves here in this text. And, and I think one of the common mis, um, mishandlings of God's word is when we, when we look at a passage, we look through a Bible story, and we find the hero, and we, like somehow we identify ourselves. Here we are, we're in the story, we're the hero, right? We kind of read ourselves into the story. But in this story, it's really hard to do that, first of all, because there's really no hero in the story. But even more alarming than that, we see the sinful acts of Israel. We see their folly. We see how they've veered away from God's ways. And we can't help but think, how have I done this? Right? Some of us might be coming in from this week thinking, I know exactly how I've done this this week. Right? I've, I've stepped aside. I've, I've indulged in things that, that have really pulled me away from God rather than allowing me to, to engage with God and glorify him even more. And so the story is slightly alarming. It should be majorly alarming, actually. Because what we see here, the people are going to mess up in in a pretty major way. Okay? And Aaron, he's going to say it's an accident, right? I threw in the fire, I threw the stuff in the fire, and voila, somehow this golden calf comes out. But but this is no accident. And through this chapter, what what we're going to see, we're going to learn about, we're going to learn something about God. 
But even more so, we're going to learn about ourselves. We're going to learn about our disposition. And it'll expose a fundamental, fundamental truth about us. First of all, this is number one, that we were made to worship. That we were made to worship. That's part of our, our, our nature, that we were worshipers, that we came into this world as worshipers, and for every day of our life, we will engage in worship. And secondly, it shows us that we become what we worship. So we were made worshipers, and we become what we worship. Now, for some of the Christians in this room, maybe you've heard this language before. Right? And, and even though you've heard it and you know my worship is supposed to be upon God, and he's the only one that's deserving of such worship, and, and we try and we try and try, but we still find ourselves with these competitors in our hearts, right? Things that are, are trying to rob glory, rob worship from God and gain our attention and our affections. And so the question for us maybe isn't so much well, what does that mean that we were made worshipers and we become what we worship, but how do I... How do I stop from worshiping these lesser things? And how do I worship God fully? And so with those kind of questions that are bouncing around in our head, we're going to dive into this text here. And if you've been um, visiting today or or you just joined us, um, we, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the entire Bible. And we are all the way up to chapter 32 of the book of Exodus. And up to this point, God has delivered his people from Egyptian slavery and he has led them into this new land. He's saying, I'm taking you to this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. But on the way to that promised land, God leads his people into this wilderness, this place where we find ourselves today, next to Mount Sinai. And it's here where God makes a covenant with his people, a promise, a bond that cannot be broken. And in short, God says, I will bless you in exchange for your obedience and devotion to me. And the people in chapters 20 through 23, God lays out all these commandments, what it looks like to obey God, to be devoted to him. And the people say, yep, we're on board, we're going to do it. And so this covenant is made, and after this covenant is made, God calls Moses back up to the mountain to be with him for for an extended period of time, which will end up being about 40 days. And what God is doing with Moses at this point is he's he's giving him details on how to build this tabernacle. And a couple weeks ago, if you were with us, this tabernacle, we unpacked this. This is where God would dwell among his people. It's very fancy, very beautiful, very specific details and designs on what God actually requires for his glory, for his presence to move in next door. And so Moses is receiving these instructions. We saw that as well last year where God says, hey, I'm going to call these men and women to build and to construct this for me. And they're going to do it with great skill and they're going to do it beautifully. And so this is where Moses is. He's up on the, up on the mountain in the presence of God for the 40, 40 days. Now, meanwhile, while that's going on, we have another story that's going on here in, in Exodus chapter 32. So this is where we're at. If you want to grab your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible at your feet there. Um, if you don't own one, you can take that home with you. Uh, that's our gift to you. Um, but we'll be in Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who has brought us up out of, Egypt land, out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So right here we know, according to previous chapters, that Moses has been gone for an extended period of time, the longest that, that Moses has ever been gone from his people. 
And I would imagine if you're an Israelite, you're at the point, you're down back at the camp, and Moses has gone back up the hill, and it's been such a long time, you're starting to wonder, is, is Moses coming back? Right? Is, does God still care about us? Or, or maybe, maybe he's changed his mind. And I think it's likely that they had that sort of internal dialogue with themselves because of what happens next. But the reality is, is that these people, though they feel this way, though they feel that like God has abandoned them and, and maybe distanced himself from them, that's far from being the case. Because the reality is God is currently, at that moment in time, making plans on how to move next door, how to move into the neighborhood and dwell among his people in tabernacle. And I think that there's an important lesson for us to see here. Right? Those moments where we feel like maybe God has distanced himself. Maybe you know, we cry out to God and it seems like there's no answer or, 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 or he's far away from us. Those moments... God has not abandoned us. He has not forsaken us. In fact, typically following those moments where we feel that distance are, 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 are gateways into moments where we feel a deeper intimacy with God, where God is actually making plans to come nearer to us. And so if you find yourself in that place where God feels distant, you know, if you're like me, it, it kind of ebbs and flows throughout the week. But if you feel that distance, hang on. Don't, don't jump to conclusions like that. God has not left you. In fact, he's making plans to draw near to you. That's what he desires for you. And perhaps that moment of, of absence or distance or, or that feeling that we have is just a, a way for us to re-engage with God. Now, the people in Israel down at the camp, they don't have this kind of foresight. They're right in the midst of it, and in their waiting, they become restless. They grow idle in their waiting. They, they don't actually have anything to do while they're waiting, and so they become idle. And this unoccupied waiting leads to bad things. One translation of, of a proverb says that idle hands are the devil's workshop. That in those moments where we don't actually have anything to do to occupy ourselves, it's a gateway into temptation and into sin. And we can almost say that almost every stupid and sinful thing that we have willingly engaged in can be tracked back to idleness. See, this idleness is sin's gateway into deeper sins. Throughout the New Testament, we see how idleness spurs people on to gossip, to lust, to gluttony, to drunkenness, to quarrelsome, to, to be quarrelsome. And one of the labels that, that gets put upon uh, those who are idle is the sense of busybodies. Now, being a busybody isn't uh, necessarily a good thing. In our culture, it's, it's almost the norm to be busy. We live busy lives. We keep going from one thing to the next. But there's this busybody label that's put upon people who are busy with the wrong things. That in their boredom, in their idleness, in their restlessness, they occupy themselves with things of the flesh, things of this world that actually don't promote godliness, that don't express love for neighbor, that don't express love for self, for the church. And so there's this real steep, steep slope that idleness puts us on that leads us into sin if we aren't careful. And so because of this, because idleness is a threat to faithfulness, through the New Testament, Christians are commanded to be on guard, to watch out for idleness, to keep away from it. 
Now, the wrong way to go about this is to become busybodies, right? What I've mentioned, become busy with the wrong things. But there's a godly way to keep ourselves occupied. This means keeping our minds centered on the gospel and the promises of God while engaging in community and on mission. It looks like keeping certain rhythms and and liturgies to keep our hearts focused and centered on God. This might be daily time in the word and prayer, um, gathering as a missional community and, and being here for Sunday morning gatherings. Might be listening to podcasts or reading books, doing Porterbrook or Bible studies, things that, that set our heart and set our affections upon God and keep his promises and his word at the front of our minds. But not just, it's not just an intellectual endeavor. It's something that's meant to propel us into good works. To care for one another. See, chances are, if you're feeling bored in your missional community, there's somebody else who is going through time that needs your shoulder, whether to cry on, maybe they need your encouragement. So if you feel like you could be idle, if you feel sort of displaced with something to do, then there's needs around you that could be met. Now you can see how this definitely wasn't the mentality for the people in Israel. This wasn't the case for them. While Moses was away with God up on Mount Sinai, their undisciplined waiting makes them eager to dismiss and disregard the God who had brought them out of Egypt and the man that God appointed to lead them. They quickly abandon him. They go to, Mo- to Aaron, who is the guy who's in charge right now. As Moses went back up the hill, he said, Mo- Aaron, you're in charge right now. I want you to look after the people of Israel, make sure they stay on track. And so these guys know that Aaron's the guy at, at the helm. And they go to him and they say, make us gods to go before us. Right? We don't know about this, this man, Moses. Maybe he's a mirage or maybe he's not even, you know, what's, what's he doing? He's probably dilly-dallying. There's this dismissal and disregard for God and the man of God. And so they go to Aaron for what they think is a God upgrade. Look at verse 2. And Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. See, with a, he, he did this with a, a, a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, let me give you a little bit of perspective of what's going on here. See, while, while they are saying these things in chapter 32, while they're fashioning and crafting and making for themselves something to worship, God is up on the mountain with Moses making plans for them that, that they, with the very hands that are carving images of idols, will be the ones who, who sculpt and make and design the tabernacle in which God will dwell. There's a, 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 a juxtaposition here. See, while Moses is getting instructions on the tabernacle, he's being instructed on how the priests are to lead and to love God's people, Aaron, which Aaron has a role in that, mind you, that he will be the great, or to be the high priest who leads the people in the tabernacle. In the meantime, Aaron is down succumbing to the, to the demands of the people. 
He is making for them false gods. See, while Moses is being taught how to build a tabernacle so the glory of God can dwell in it, Aaron is forging a trinket for them to worship. See, Aaron is supposed to be this spiritual leader of Israel, and here he is crafting a pagan god. Now, throughout this passage, there is quite the contrast between the leadership of Moses and the leadership of Aaron, and, and that's something that we could unpack, and that could be a sermon in and of itself, but I, I, I don't want to spend time with that. I, what I want to focus here is just to say this, that Moses is the, the leader that Israel needs, while Aaron is the leader that Israel sinfully wants in their heart. See, Moses is the, the leader that Israel needs, and, and Aaron is the one that they sinfully want in their sinful heart. See, godly leadership is set in place to keep people from reverting back to their heart's sinful desires. Moses, what we'll see in this, this chapter, he does this well. Moses is anchored in the presence of God, and he is tied down and compelled by the word of God, where Aaron is tossed to and fro by the demands of the people. See, godly leadership is for the people to lead them into God and away from their idols. This means that a good leader, whether you're an MC leader, a husband, a father, employer, you will always let the voice of God be the loudest voice in your life. If you're a leader, there are always going to be critiques. There's always going to be opinions that tell you what to do and how to do it. And if you give in to those voices, then you're just going to be tossed to and fro. But if you hear God's voice as the loudest voice in your love, in your life, you will be directed in which way you should go. So at home, men... When we lead our homes, this means listening to God. What does it look like to establish our homes with godly rhythms? Right? Maybe our kids or maybe the convenience of things says things are easier to, to maybe uh, do dinner at, at the couch in front of the TV. Maybe it's easier to sleep in. The, the demands for more sleep are always present. But for us to be godly leaders in our homes means for us to step in to the, the hard things, to, to, to lead our people, to lead our family into the presence of God, whether that be through family discipleship and devotions, family worship, right? That takes time and mental energy for you to set aside that time and say, I'm going to lead my family in this way. We're going to pray together as a family, even when it's not convenient, even when the TV's running. We're going to shut it off, and we're going to focus here, and we're going to develop our love for Christ in this way as a family, MC leaders, you might feel the voices pulling you away from mission, your focus on mission as a missional community, right? People say, well, I don't, I don't have time for this. Maybe I don't, I don't have the heart for this. I hear that a lot. I don't have the heart for this. And these voices can, can deter us from the work that God has set before us. And so for us to be good leaders means to keep our nose to what God has called us to. This also means to be a godly leader, you're probably going to have people who are upset with you. Right? If you are standing in the way of their idols, if you are preventing people from bowing down before other false gods, people aren't necessarily going to like that initially. And so there's this, 
this call for you to stand firm in the word of God, to be a man or woman of conviction for what God has called you to and to call the people in which God has gave you influence and leadership over to lead them into that as well. Now at this point in the story, Aaron is not an effective leader. See, rather than leading, he is being led by the people. He's giving them what they want, succumbing to their demands. When they say, make us gods, if Aaron was leading, he would have said, no. Do you guys remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. If Aaron was leading and they said, well, we forgot about Moses, or maybe he's just left, he said, no, no, no. Remember, Moses said he was going to be up there for a long time. That's what leadership would have looked like. See, if he were leading, he would have pointed his people to the top of the mountain and shown them the cloud that was there and the lightning and the thunder that was still lingering and said, hey, that is your God right there. And he is making plans to come near. But he doesn't do any of that. Aaron folds to the people's demands and he, with his own hands, forms for them this golden calf. Now you might be thinking, why a golden calf? Right. Why would Aaron make a gold cap? Why wouldn't he make something cool like a, a dragon, right? Something to bow down before and, and look at and worship or a lion. But this is a key part uh, of this text in showing us that though the Israelites have been taken out of Egypt, there is still a lot of Egypt left in the Israelites. See, in Egypt... There are many gods who would have been represented by cows, and therefore cows were, were not only created into these statues and monuments, but cows themselves were sort of worshipped in, in Egypt. And so what, what this shows us is that rather than Aaron leading the people to the God who had brought them out of, of, of the land of Egypt, he is kind of taking them back in to Egypt in a sense, to back into that slavery mentality. They are reverting back to what they know. Proverbs 26, 11 has a great way to speak of what's going on here. Like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. They're just going right back to the miserable mistakes that they had made. And so at the first sign of trouble, right, at the sign of Moses as he's taking too long, the people of Israel go back, essentially, to what they knew in Egypt, Let's keep looking what's going on here. Um, verse four here. They fashioned this golden calf with graving tools and they made a golden calf and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now, these people make demands for this new God to go before us. Aaron does it. He crafts this golden calf and the people bow down to worship it. And they acknowledge like. They acknowledge this thing as what delivered them from Egypt. And, and we look at this and we say, really, guys? Really, this golden calf is what let you to, let, led you out of Egypt? Two minutes ago, this thing didn't exist. And now you are bowing before it. But here's the thing. See, we, we look at that and we can say, oh, that is so ridiculous. 
But there's something about this thing, about this golden calf that scratches an itch that the people have, embedded deep within them. And that's the need to worship. See, everyone worships always. It is impossible for you, for us, for the Israelites to not worship because we were all created to worship. See, the the human heart is like a fire hose that is permanently stuck on. Worship is always spewing out. You can't shut it off. Now, what I'm talking about here when I talk about worship, you're probably thinking, well, worship, I don't, I sing on Sunday mornings and that's about it. That's, that's, you know, that's my worship. But the kind of worship that I'm talking about here is not just limited to this on Sunday mornings, which what we do here on Sunday morning is, in fact, worship to lift our, our voices together before the Lord, to confess our sin, to receive the forgiveness through the gospel, to profess our faith in Christ. That is, in fact, worship. But this worship that we do day in and day out is not just singing songs on Sundays. It's more than that. See, worship is ascribing beauty, worth, and value to something as ultimate or most important to us. See, it's expressed in our priorities. It's expressed by what we sacrifice for, how much we sacrifice for that thing, where our time, where our money, where our affections and love flow to. So in this sense, we're always valuing something. We're always ascribing worth and beauty and honor to something in our lives. But the question is this, who or what am I worshiping, right? If our hearts are like a fire hose that are constantly flowing water, what exactly is the fire hose pointed at? Now, if you're a good Christian Sunday school person, I was one of those, you would say, well, ideally God gets all the glory, uh, all of my worship because he's the only one that's worthy of our worship, right? That is the right answer. And so many, we would, we would ascribe to that. We would say, yes, for sure, I know that is to be true. And at the same time, there's this functional worship of lesser things that's going on in our lives. See, the condition of our hearts, the fact that sin has embedded itself in our hearts as well, has created a worship disorder. We have misplaced our worship upon smaller, lesser, insignificant things rather than putting it upon God who is worthy of all glory and honor and worship. And to do so is called idolatry. See, God sees what we'll see in verse seven and eight. God sees What's going on here? Even though the people don't really understand what's going on, God sees what's going on on here and he identifies this heart disorder in verses seven and eight. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying, Moses, you are the one, it's not this golden calf, you are the one who has led these people out with my help. Go down for they have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I had commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. See, because of this disorder, this worship disorder, because of sin's corruption in our hearts, we are prone to turning aside. 
we are prone to worshiping what is shockingly inferior, and we give ourselves to these idols. Romans 1 talks about this. I mean, if you want to flip with me, otherwise I'll, I'll read it out for you here. Romans 1, 21 and 23 talks about what, what has happened to our hearts. He says, for although they knew God, right? Think of this. At least maybe 30, 40 days ago, they saw the glory of God before them. See, they saw, they knew God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That there was a willful dismissal of God and a clinging to things that were so much more inferior. See, this is the definition of idolatry. Right? It's, it's ascribing value or worth to something that is lesser than God. And, and the thing is that we do this too. We do this with all kinds of things. There are certainly things that we look at and say, oh, that's an idol. That's, that's a bad thing for us to, to worship and to love. But we do this also. We make idols out of good things. John Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory, that our hearts are constantly producing things to worship rather than worshiping God. Now, this means that our work can become an idol, right? We use our work as leverage, as a way to get our identity by what we put forward and, and the effort that we've put forth, and maybe our paycheck comes back as a result of that, so we put money as an idol, and there's different ways we can use money as an idol. We can, we can spend money on ourselves in order to elevate ourselves, maybe our status, or maybe we use money as an idol to keep ourselves comforted, right? We use it as a comfort idol to say, well, as long as I got this in the bank, I feel like I'm pretty secure. We can use our reputation as an idol. Comfort can be an idol that prevents us from worshiping God rightly, and part of worshiping God rightly means to engage in mission with what God is doing among his people, so comfort keeps us from doing that. Sports, community, our individuality, knowledge, money, sex, power, all of these things can be an idol. I think one of, one of the main idols that we see here in the Quad Cities and in the Midwest is the idol of family. Now, family is a good thing, Right? It is good for us to love our family, to invest in our children, to see them grow up, to see them mature into adulthood and release them into the world. It is a good thing for us to love our family. But there's a way that we take this good thing and we make it the ultimate thing. Right? We, we give in to the needs of our children, maybe, or the, the perceived needs, what the kids need, rather than really giving them what they need. Right? We, we give them entertainment and these vacations and whatever, 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 rather than leading them into the knowledge of Christ. Now, vacations and entertainment, those are not bad things, but when that becomes the driving factor of our life, then, then family has become an, an idol to us. Tim Keller says that, that a traditionally conservative society always makes an idol out of the family. 
right? Because it's, it's a value that we have, but it's a misplaced worship where we elevate our family above God. I think another common idol that we see is the idol of health and beauty, right? Where people spend hours and hours and hours making sure they put the right stuff into their body and working out a certain regimen that keeps them certainly fit and applying the right makeup and wearing the right clothes. And we invest hours and hours and money upon money in order to get to this perceived level of beauty, right? It becomes an ultimate thing to us. We start making sacrifices to these things, right? All this is what gets me crazy a little bit. I, I like sleep. Sleep is good. And sleep also can become an idol to itself. But to think that there are, are people who devote hours preparing for the day, right? Trying on different outfits and getting the hair just right, maybe doing the makeup, putting hours into finding this beauty sweet spot. See, it's, it's good to make yourself representable. It's good. But when that gets elevated to the place of ultimate, it becomes idolatry. Now, Tim Keller, he says this, that if you love anything more than God, if you rest your security in anything more than the providence and wisdom and sovereignty of God, if your imagination is captured by anything more than the greatness of God, if your value is rooted in anything more than the grace and the love of God, if you love anything more than God, and you do, you are looking to a created thing to give you what only God can possibly give you. Therefore, you have set up for yourself an idol. You see, the reality is that we all have these functional idols, things that we find ourselves maybe consciously or unconsciously worshiping, devoting ourselves to by giving our resources, our time, our affections to. Now, these are things that we turn to rather than God for our, our comfort, for our identity, for our protection, for our value, for our delight and our joy. You see, this is such a problem among us that we're so quick to cling to these things. Now, chances are that as we walk out these doors this, this morning, at some point today, we will probably walk into a proverbial worship service of another idol. Even today, after we've spent our morning in worship to the, the Most High God, that we will be quick to turn. See, that's how fickle our hearts are. That is the corruption that our hearts have because of sin, that we're constantly being derailed and turned aside if we listen to sin's impulses. Now, if we don't have an accurate view of the severity of the situation, it, we might try to convince ourselves that this was just an honest mistake, right? I, I didn't mean to, to worship this thing. I didn't mean for my affections to be captured by this thing. It's kind of a whoopsie-daisy. But when you look through verses five and six, this is not a whoopsie-daisy thing. See, an altar has been built. Sacrifices have been made. Offerings have been given. A worship celebration of sorts unfolds. See, what Aaron does here is he dresses idolatry and orthodoxy. He gives their sinful actions a veneer of righteousness. See, we, we do this too. Whether it be with our idol worship or the sins in our life, 
See, we, we might label the worship of family as being a good parent. We might label gossip as concern for others or maybe our brashness with our words as a passion for truth. You might stockpile money and say, well, I'm just trying to be a good steward of what God has given me, but really you're worshiping an idol of comfort. See, the corruptness of our heart is so intense that we have become very good at deceiving ourselves, at putting this righteous veneer on something that is not righteous at all. See, dressing idolatry in orthodoxy is like putting sugar coating on rabbit droppings and calling them candy. See, on the outside, it might look like sixlets, right? You bite into them, those ain't sicklets. See, God, he's not fooled by this, right? He's not fooled by our outward appearances of trying to make things look good, but really when our hearts are displaced in the worship of other things. See, in verse eight, look at verse 9 and 10. Where do I go here? Verse 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have seen this people, and behold, this is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. See, this doesn't fool God. This veneer of righteousness doesn't fool God. He says, my anger, my wrath will burn against these people for their folly, for their idol worship. And here's a couple of reasons why. First of all, because in this way, in, in people worshiping other gods, this golden calf that they've made with their own hands, God is not getting the worship and glory that he deserves, right? We'll see this in, in Exodus 34 where God says that I'm a jealous God. Now, we might think of that in sort of um, petty terms, that God is a jealous in the same way that I'm jealous over somebody else's cooler car. No, no, no. God is jealous for his glory, meaning that he, he alone is deserving of it. And so when he sees something lesser getting what he deserves, he takes issue with that. See, when he doesn't get the rightful place in our hearts, he takes issue with that. Now, the second reason why God's anger is going to burn against these people is that his people, in worshiping these pagan gods, this, this um, golden calf, they become less than what they were made to be. By turning to idols, we will never reach our God-given potential because we become what we worship. Greg Beale wrote a book on this case about idolatry and worshiping. He says, what people revere, what they esteem, what they value, what they hold to, what people revere, they will resemble either for their ruin or for restoration. See, God's laid this out in previous chapters here, that God's intentions are to make his people like him. His intentions are to make his people holy, to make them beautiful, to make them marvelous, and, to, and what we'll see when the Bible continues, to see them reign with Christ as co-heirs. See, these are God's intentions. 
to make them holy as he is holy. But how? How does God do this? How will God make his people holy? And the answer to that is through worship. See, this has been the main theme throughout this book so far. When, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, Moses' plea for his people to be let go is, let my people go so that they may worship God in the wilderness. See, this whole time, it has been about worship. Worship, what we become, what we worship. Worship transforms us, it changes us into what we worship. Now, that means that God transforms his people through God-centered worship. That if we want to be transformed, if we want to be changed, then we do so through worship. You can see the problem here, that by worshiping this golden calf, Israel has not become like God. They have not grown in glory and in grace. They have become like this golden calf. They are characterized like this. They are stiff-necked people. Right? A golden calf cannot move its head, friends. They have become stiff-necked and stubborn. Right? We even see this in, in the characteristic of what they've done after they've offered their, off, their offerings and their worship to this cow. They say they, they eat, they drink, and they play. What does a calf do all day? Nothing of substance, they, they get up, they eat, they drink, they frolic through the field. And so these people have become shallow. There's no substance to them. They have become like this golden calf that they worship. Now Psalm 115 characterizes this as well. Flip to it. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. See, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. See, if your worship is set on corruptible things, if your worship is set on anything but God, then you will be ruined. You will become like that thing you are worshiping. And what you worship and what you set your affections on here right now points to your future state. If you worship God, you will be restored to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that as we behold God, as we behold Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. But if we worship the created rather than the creator, we will fall apart. We will become ruined. Now, God is ready to pounce on his people at this point. He sees the folly of the people and he is ready to destroy them. Verse 10, he, he's making an offer to Moses. He says, hey, let me, let me wipe these people out. Let my wrath burn against them. And, and then I'll, I'll build a new nation upon you, Moses. Now, you probably wonder, why could God even consider doing such a thing? 
Why would he even play with the idea of destroying his people and restarting? But here's the reason why. Within 60 days, tops, they have broken the covenant that they made with God. They are covenant breakers. God would have been just in destroying all of the people at that very moment for their unfaithfulness. They have not held up their end of the deal. They've broken the commandments one and two, the two most important commandments. But Moses implores the Lord to relent in verses 11 through 14. And he recalls to God the covenant that God has made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, look at, that's significant here. He Abraham is appealing to the covenant rather than appealing to something else, to say, justifying it by saying, well, they, they had good intentions, right? You can make an argument, right? Uh, when, when Aaron says, let's, let's have a feast to the Lord, right? The Lord is Yahweh, if you, if you look that up. Aaron sort of thinks that by worshiping this golden calf, he's worshiping the God of the Bible, except for the fact that commandments one and two strictly prohibit this. Right? Moses could have said, hey, well, their intentions were good. They might bargain with God. Well, it, 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 we'll do this if you do this for us. But he doesn't do that. Moses appeals to God's mercy through the covenant to preserve this people from God's wrath. So God graciously relents from their destruction, right? These people will not face, as a whole, these people will not face God's wrath, but they will face Moses. Right? You read ahead. Verse 15, then Moses turned and he went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the front and on the back. They were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets so Moses, he's going back down. He's got the most valuable thing on earth at this point, right? The fact that God has given them, the, given them these tablets, that God has made them with his hand. In the last chapter, we're told that God wrote these with his own finger. These are the most important things at this point in the world. Now in verse 17 to 18, as they keep moving down the mountain, Joshua and Moses, they, see, they hear this noise, and they say, well, it's not, it sounds like a, a war, a battle's going on, but there's, there's not, it's not a battle. It sounds like singing. The closer they got, it sounds like singing. And maybe, you know, they're thinking, well, maybe they've changed their minds. Maybe they're singing that, that hymn that they sang back in Exodus 15 after God had delivered them out of, out of the Red Sea. Maybe they're singing that song again. And, and Moses and, and Joshua, they get down at the bottom of the mountain, and they see what's going on. They see the golden calf, and Moses loses it. Verse 19. And as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the golden calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses is one irate pastor at this moment. You might think that, that he's just flown off the handle, that he's got some anger problem. But what Moses is doing is actually the most logical, 
God-honoring response that he can possibly have to the situation. He comes down, he smashes the tablets as a sign of, uh, of breaking of the covenant. He burns down the calf, he grinds it up and scatters it in the water and makes him drink it, right? You know your MC leader's mad at you when he, when he takes your idol and he grinds that thing up and says, drink it! By smashing the tablets, Moses indicates that the people have broken their covenant with God. Right? Their vows to do what God says means nothing at this point. He destroys the idol that they were worshiping, and they make, it to cons- make them consume it to show them how powerless that idol was in the first place. Right? If you think about it, when, when God is up on the mountain, they can't even touch the mountain lest they die. And here they're actually going to consume this idol. And they're probably going to get sick. Maybe that's what this plague at the end of the chapter is about. As they consume this idol, they get sick from doing it. But they're going to live. They won't die on the spot. See, Moses, at this moment, is stepping into the role of godly leader that Aaron had been failing at. In this moment, Moses is redirecting these people from the idol that had corrupted their hearts. Actually, no, this idol didn't corrupt their hearts. Their corrupt hearts created this idol. And in this moment, he's pointing them back to God. And so Moses, he's trying to figure out what happened here, how things fell off so quickly, right? And he goes to Aaron in verses 21 through 24. He says, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, not, let not the anger of my Lord, that's Moses, burn hot, You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, let any of you take gold off. And so they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and and out came this calf. Moses, or Aaron say, well, I I don't know. It just kind of happened, right? Threw it in, out comes this calf. Aaron here is blaming the people and taking no responsibility for his actions as the leader. Now, it's true that the people are set on evil. Right? That, is, that is one of the shocking truths that when, when we see that, that is just as true as, of us as, as it is for the people in Israel at this moment, that our hearts are set on evil. Think of it like a thermostat, Right? It was hot the last few days. Some of us turn our air conditioners on because we're a little thick skin and we can't handle uh, the heat. And so uh, we turn the air conditioner on. We set it on a certain temperature. And, and then to maintain that temperature, an air conditioner kicks on, right? To think of that, like our hearts are set on sin, that we're always maintaining this level of sin because that is the corruptness of our hearts, Apart from the grace of God, of course. So because they are set on evil, Aaron gives in to their sinful demands and somehow, boom, there's a poem calf. But but Moses, he doesn't buy this. He's smart. Moses is a smart guy. And what he does, he, he resumes his leadership responsibilities here in verses 25 and 26. He says, and, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, right, to the, to the derision of their enemies, this is highlighting Aaron's failure here as a leader. 
Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all of the sons of Levi gathered around him. Now, these next verses here are strange, right? We're going to see Moses appoint these Levites to go through the camp and destroy those who are not on God's side. And we might be thinking, well, how could God, how could Moses do this? Right? Why, how, could they, how could they kill these people who maybe just are a little deceived? No, no. These people are willingly rebellious against God. At this point, Israel is a theocracy. That God is their king. Not only is he the God of the universe, but God is their king. So he is the, the ruler. And so to, to resist God in this way is treason. To resist God is, as their leader is treason. So it would have been right for them to die in that moment. In fact, if you go back, remember in, in, in the middle of this where, God, where, where the Lord is saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to visit them with my wrath. See, what, what would have been right, what would have been just, would have been for God to destroy everyone at that time. But he doesn't. God doesn't do that. He shows them mercy. He gives his people a chance to, for those who have broken loose, Moses reels them back in and he calls them to repentance. He gives them a chance to turn back away from their idols and turn to God. And the majority of the people take this opportunity. They see, oh man, I see my sin. I've seen the foolishness of what it is to bow down before this golden calf and to offer it worship as if this thing led us out of Egypt. And so they repent. But for those who do not repent are met by the wrath of God that very day. Verse 27 through 30 tell us that they are killed by the sword. And like I said, this might make us uncomfortable to think that, that God would unleash his wrath on people like that. But it's true. It's, it's a clear picture of the destruction that happens when we worship lesser things, that when our hearts are set upon lesser gods. So that is indeed alarming, but what should be more alarming to us this morning are the thousands of people who are in our cities who share that same fate, right? Our city is drowning in idol worship. Your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, if they are not worshiping Jesus, they are worshiping idols, and so as Christians, you should feel this urgency to share the gospel with your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, because their future depends upon it, right? Just like we, we become what we worship, they too become what they will worship. And if you have a heart for them, if you desire to see them not destroyed, then you'll step into that. You'll, you'll share with them the good news. You'll invite them to missional community. You'll bring them along to Sunday mornings. You'll open up your lives to them. You'll, you'll introduce them to your Christian friends. You'll talk about your faith with them. You'll pray for them. See, Moses... Moses has a heart for these people... And I think that we as a church, that we as leaders need to see Moses' heart here. See this burden that he carries for the people. See, Moses knows if this sin doesn't get dealt with, they'll have to face the sin on their own. He 
He knows the seriousness of their sins. He knows that blood is due. He knows that the people have broken commandments one and two, the most important commandments. And even after the idols have been destroyed, after the rebellion has been snuffed out, Moses isn't sure if the blood of animals will cover such a sin. Look at verses 30 and 32. So the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, see that? Perhaps, I'm I'm unsure if this will even work. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. See, Moses carries this burden for his people. He's got a burden for those who are, who are stuck in, in worship of idols. He says, perhaps I can help free you from this. He goes on. And so Moses returned to the Lord and he said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, look at this, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. See, Moses is saying, I see how great their sin is. He's thinking it'll probably take every animal that we have in our camp to, to, to atone for the sins before us. He knows that the altar will be going day in and day out because of this one event. And he says, but if every animal doesn't satisfy your wrath, oh God, take me in their place. Let my name be blotted out so that theirs can continue. See, this is crazy. This is the type of heart, this is the type of leader that Moses is, that he would lay his own life down for his people. See, I think this is, this is what Christian leadership looks like. Know that, friends. If you're in a missional community, your MC leaders more than likely carry the sort of burden for you, and it may be even a growing burden that they desire your well-being so much, they pray for you, they intercede for you. See, this is what good Christian leadership looks like. And it seems like we're at a climax here where where God's gonna look at this beautiful gesture that Moses makes for his own self-sacrifice and says, hey, you know what? We're all good here. All I wanted to know is how much you care for your people. But that doesn't happen. Look at verse 33 and 34. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. See, God says no to Moses. He says, I will not accept your name in my place or I will not accept your sacrifice in the place of the people. But why not? Why not? Why wouldn't God accept such a selfless thing? See, God won't accept Moses' self-sacrifice on behalf of the people because though he was willing to do it, Moses was not qualified. See, if Moses goes... And sacrifices himself, the only person's sins who he's paying for are his own because Moses himself is a sinner. 
See, if he were, if he were to be sacrificed, it only count as payment for his own sins, let alone people. So to deal with this sin issue, this grievous, horrific turning from God and turning to an idle sin that people had, they need a leader who is not only willing, but qualified. They need a person who keeps God's laws perfectly, who never stumbled into the temptation of idolatry, who always kept their fire hose of their heart pointed on God. Friends, we share the same need. Because where the Israelites stumble and they worship lesser things, we do the same thing. That our hearts have gravitated toward what is small and neglected what is infinite. And so we have the same need. That there is wrath stored up for all of us because our hearts have been corrupted and we worship small things. And what God says here is that That on the day that he visits, he will visit their sin upon them. See, that sin issue is still lingering. But there was a day when God visited, a day where God put on flesh, became like us, who knew what it was like to be tempted, he knew what it was like to face weakness. God came to us through Jesus Christ as the God-man who was, lived a sinless life, who lived perfectly so he could not only be the willing person to lay his life down, but he would be qualified to do so. See, for all the times that we have wandered away from God, all the times that our hearts have been, been satisfied in things lesser than God. All of the times that we've built our life around other idols, Jesus came willingly and qualified to take on God's wrath for you. See, Jesus took the place beneath God's wrath so that you could be in the place of God's embrace. This is good news. See, Jesus freed us from the wrath that awaits us, freed us from the punishment of sin. And you know what happens when you see what Jesus has done for you? When you understand the severeness of your sin against God? You know what happens when you see that? You worship. You are filled with joy and delight in what God has accomplished when you could not do it for yourself. And so we behold Jesus. Our hearts are stirred up with affections for him. God visited, he visited us and he took upon our sin for us so that we would not have to face that. So for those who who repent of their idolatry, right, that's all of us, to acknowledge where our hearts veer away and, and say, you know what, God, my heart has been misled and I am turning to you as the one who will atone for my sin and make me satisfied in you. See, no idol will do for you what Jesus did. Your idols will only tell you to keep working harder and harder and harder and then condemn you. Say, you're not good enough. There's still more work to do. You messed up there. See what Jesus says here. 
He comes not to condemn us, but to save us, to deliver us, and to say, it is finished. Delight in me. See, when you see what God has done for you, when you see how strong his love is for you, that he would have such mercy and grace to pour out upon you through his son, all of our other idols seem so foolish. That's what I, I hope for you this morning. You, I hope that the spirit is moving in your heart to identify the places where your heart naturally goes to. And he's saying, guys, that is dumb. Come worship what is ultimate. Come worship what has beauty and truth and grace for you. See, nothing will love you like God loves you. Therefore, you should worship God like nothing else. See, this is how we overcome the idolatry in our lives. See, the way to to move past our idolatry is not to stop worshiping, but to worship something greater. A.W. Pink, he's a a pastor, commentator. I'll leave you with this final thought here. He says, man must have an object. And when he turns from the true God, he at once craves a false one. But this statement can also be reversed. The way to reduce our craving for false gods is for our minds and our hearts to be intoxicated with the spirit of the one true God. Friends, I pray this morning that we would be intoxicated with the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and laid his life down for us so that we would be adopted into God's family. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are glorious and supreme, that you indeed are are gracious and merciful and slow to anger, and we appeal to you on behalf of your characteristics this morning because we are sinful people that our hearts, without your grace, are set on sin and evil, that we have been corrupted, that we have this natural proclivity to go toward lesser things. And Father, we are disgusted at that. Your spirit has moved in a way that has made me completely discontent with worshiping lesser things, and I desire to worship you fully. So Father God, would you loosen the chains? Would you undo the bits of of Egypt that are still in my heart and allow me to worship you fully and completely to glorify you with all that I am? And that as we do so as a church, Father, you would strengthen us in faith, that you would help us to delight in the person and the work of Christ, that you would transform us as we behold you from one degree of glory to the next, God, for our good and for your glory, we pray this in Christ Jesus' name, amen.